Before we start, I just wanted to take a second to mention another podcast called The Whispers in the Night Podcast. If you like the kinds of stories we tell here and have an interest in folklore, be sure to check them out. You can find them on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. In his 1980 television series Cosmos, Carl Sagan, over the image of an ever-receding planet Earth, implores the viewer to realize how precious what we have here, now, is. When he says every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there, on a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam, our planet takes up barely 5% of the frame. When he says, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is barely a pinprick in space. And when he ends his speech by saying, to me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. The earth has faded away. It's a lovely sequence, filled with hopeful words. We're meant to follow our planet over the course of those three minutes or so, to see just how important that dot, our planet, is as we zoom past Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. But often when I watch that clip, my eyes turn, distracted, from the only home we've ever known to the vast ocean of darkness surrounding it. A black sheet pierced by points of light. There's still so much, even in the 35 years since Sagan's show aired, that we don't know about the spaces in between. The emptiness that makes up the majority of our universe. What is it that's out there? This month, two more stories. In the first, phoning home, a young man wakes up in the hospital after he falls ill. In the second, the blind man's telescope, a volunteer learns a lot about space from a blind man. Death and dying are the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From MWHS, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. When I was 18, I got sick. It started as a general icky feeling. You know the kind. That all-over soreness that precedes the flu. By the morning, I was covered in sweat, convulsing, and I could barely see. I had to be hospitalized. I ran a fever of 102 for weeks. I must have seen the whole of the hospital staff during my time there. I did so many tests and saw the ends of so many needles, I can't remember what they all were for. No one could figure out what was wrong.
by my fourth week in the hospital, I had lost 20 pounds and was on my way to losing 10 more. They pumped me full of fluid. When swallowing got hard, they shoved a feeding tube down my throat, but the weight kept dropping. By the end of the fourth week, I could hardly stand, not that I wanted to. Standing had become incredibly painful, as had laying, and sitting too. I hurt all the time. Sometime around the end of the fourth week, I lost consciousness, and when I woke up in my hospital bed, after who knows how long it was, everything was different. The doctors were gone. I waited for a while, assuming that the reason I hadn't seen anyone out in the hall was because it was just a slow day at the hospital. No one hurt. No one dying. What a wonderful thought. I thought that once I had regained consciousness, doctors and nurses would rush in, and they would call my mom and my dad, and they would speed over, and they would cry, and I would cry, and then they'd tell me I was all better, and that I could go home. But none of that happened. Ten minutes after I had opened my eyes, once I had shaken the sleep out of them and stretched my brain to accommodate conscious thought again, I got up to investigate. Standing didn't hurt anymore, but standing still wasn't easy. I hadn't used my leg muscles in... I have no idea how long. I steadied myself, but still ended up falling to one knee once I got both legs out of bed and tried to support myself on them. Not a graceful kneel down, either. A crashing force right onto the kneecap. A shockwave pushed out from the impact point in the dust that had accumulated on the ground. Dust. Why was there dust on the ground? Standing up, I knocked over the IV stand. It clattered to the ground and ripped the skin open around the needle still sticking into my arm. The bag of fluids at the end of my IV had long been dry. I yanked the needle out the rest of the way, sending a shooting pain up my arm and blood flying onto the floor. I scrambled for some nearby gauze to wrap up my arm. By the time I was done, my blood on the floor had mixed with the dust and created a paste that my panicked feet had smeared all over the linoleum. I took a breath, a deep one, then another, managing the new pain in my arm like I had learned to in that hospital bed weeks earlier. Weeks earlier? Or was it days? How long was I out for? I still don't know. I hobbled over to the doorway and shouted, Hello? I don't know if I expected an answer, but I didn't get one. What I did get was a throat full of dust when I took a second sharp breath to shout again. I choked on it, was sent into a coughing fit, and lost my balance. God, how long was I out that second time? When I woke up on the floor, a thin layer of dust had already accumulated on me, like an early winter snowfall over the front lawn. I sat up and... Well, dusted myself off. I was so thirsty, I could barely think of anything else. Using the nearby hospital bed, I lifted myself up. Neither of the taps in my room worked. I grabbed a nearby surgical mask to keep the dusk from gathering in my throat and walked out into the hall. No one in the hall. No one at the nearby desk. No one.
I walked down the hall, dust dancing up from the floor with every step I took. No one in the other rooms of the ICU, not even patients. Beds were made. Linens were folded. Shelves had been freshly stocked with clean towels. If it weren't for the dust, you'd think this was a brand new hospital the night before I had seen a single patient. But I knew that wasn't true. I was a patient here, now. It was as if the staff had stocked the place and then abandoned it. Back out in the hall, I found a room marked Supply Closet, where I knew they kept bottles of water for the staff, but it was locked. I searched through the nearby desk, but didn't find any keys. I did find a small screwdriver, though, and for reasons I won't get into, knew I could pick the lock if I didn't find anyone to help me. I sat down at the desk chair to rest. I was winded, just from walking up and down this small hallway a few times. I looked over to my room. I could see the bed I was confined to for so long. Could see the pillows fluffed up. Could see the sheets nicely pressed, clean, and folded. Wait, what? Why were the sheets on my bed folded? I sprang up out of the chair. Well, sprang up is probably generous, but I got up and marched a few steps with the intention of going back to my room to investigate further. Certainly fresh sheets on my bed meant a nurse was here or something. I stepped back out into the hallway proper and my stomach flipped inside of my abdomen. The dust on the ground of that hallway was smooth, undisturbed, no sign of my footsteps that I had made just minutes before, like I had never been there. What a weird thing. I couldn't see any footsteps anywhere. What the hell was going on here? I took a few steps down to a set of chairs on the other side of the hallway. Sitting down, I watched the footsteps for a few minutes, or what I think was a few minutes. I didn't have any way of knowing. There weren't any working clocks anywhere. I watched the footsteps blur at first. Their edges lost their sharpness, rounded off. Then they started filling in. I couldn't tell if it was just from the dust particles swirling around me or some other force. But within about five minutes, they were filled in completely. No sign I had walked down that hallway. The bed in my room was covered in the same dust as everything else by the time I made my way back down the hall into my room. But I guess by this point it wasn't my room anymore. The hospital had reclaimed it. I'd forfeited my claim to it by leaving. I ended up having to force the lock on the supply closet door with a screwdriver I had found, and sure enough I found water. In my haste, I cracked the cap on one and upended the bottle. What poured down my throat wasn't water. It was barely liquid. Thick, ashy goo. It coated my tongue and reminded me of the only cigarette I've ever smoked. I coughed it up as best I could, nearly choked, and definitely vomited. When I had composed myself, I examined the bottle. The liquid inside was clear and sloshed around like plain old water. I tipped the bottle, and it spilled onto the floor in a thin stream, mixing with the dust on the floor. I took my chances with another small sip, immediately regretted it, and set the bottle down. I tried four other bottles. They were all the same. I gave up, thirsty, but less desperate for water than I had been. Wandering through floor after floor of this hospital, I lost my way. All the numbers of floors, signs pointing to this section or that section, room numbers, 
Anything that may have helped me find my way around this monstrous building had been removed. The elevator, each time I used it, took me to a different floor no matter what button I pushed. Finding my way back to a certain spot was impossible with nothing to differentiate one section from the next. The elevator taking me to random floors each time I used it, and, worst of all, my footsteps in the inescapable dust disappearing within minutes of making them. I gave up trying to retrace my steps after a while, and focused on moving forward. I needed to find drinkable water, and every tap I found and tried was busted. By this point, all of my joints were throbbing. A hangover from my mystery illness and however long I spent bedridden, I guessed, and I needed to take breaks often to catch my breath. It was on one of these breaks, leaning against a countertop in some hallway somewhere, that I looked down and saw them. Tracks in the dust. Recent ones. Fresh ones. They had to be. Whoever had made them was barefoot just like me, but their gait was all wrong. Their left foot swung way out with each step and their right foot dragged along the ground. They were injured and trapped, just like me. I looked down the hall, in the direction this mystery person was traveling, and called out. Hey! 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 It was hours before I stumbled onto those tracks again, on a completely different floor in a completely different hallway. I was dehydrated. The skin on and around my lips cracked into great chasms of sensitive, bloody skin. I had since given up on trying new taps I came across. None of them worked. I had also become aware of how ravenous I was. I hadn't eaten in I don't know how long, and my hunger was sticking a knife right into my gut. But, of course, there was no edible food, just as there was no drinkable water anywhere to be found. I looked down at the tracks. Faded, just visible here but after following along for a few minutes, they were becoming more pronounced in the thick dust. I was gaining on whoever was making them. Stopping for a minute, I caught my breath while I considered if it was wise to intrude on someone I didn't know and had never met and was, as far as I knew, completely unaware of me. I decided, ultimately, it probably wasn't, and refocused my efforts on finding my way out of this cursed hospital rationalizing that once I found my way out, I would return and lead this second person out, too. But I knew deep down, there was no way that was true. The dust grew thicker in the air with each floor I visited, no matter if I traveled up or down in the damn elevator. If I hadn't had already grabbed that surgical mask from my room, there'd be no way to breathe without one now. The dust had grown thick on the ground, several inches deep in places. It looked like powdery gray snow gathering in small drifts in the corners of the walls and against desks, chairs, and stretchers. The particles that floated in the air had been getting larger, too, swirling around this infernal hospital and setting on every surface it could. I ran into those tracks now and again, too, but never whoever was making them. I had been walking for six, eight hours maybe, which was no small feat in my condition, before I finally decided to call it quits for the moment and have a good long rest. My head was pounding from the lack of water and food. Every bone in my body ached. I had pushed myself too far. Ducking into one of the thousands of empty rooms, I found some clean linens in a closet, changed the bed, 
did my best to sweep most of the dust out of the room and shut the door. I fell asleep as soon as my head hit the pillow. The lights were off and the TV was on when I woke up. I tried the switch, but of course that wasn't working. I cracked the door and sure enough, the lights out in the hallway were off too. I turned back into the room and shut the door behind me. On the TV was the face of a man I didn't recognize. He was staring out from the TV like the TV was a mirror he was looking into, making faces, checking his teeth, fixing his hair. He was average, an average 40-something man. I thought I saw him glance at me. It was only for a split second, so I couldn't be sure, but the look sent a chill through my body. Then he smiled and started whistling. Whistling, whistling, whistling. A string of notes I didn't recognize, a string of notes that left me cold and shivering. I hurried over to the TV and pushed the power button. When it didn't turn off, I yanked the power cord. When the man was still there, whistling in my face, I left the room and shut the door behind. The dark hallway wasn't as dark as I expected it to be. Television light filtered out from the other rooms, and that man's awful whistling echoed out with it. There was no escaping. I rushed down the hall, eager to get off whatever goddamn floor I was on now. Thousandth floor? Millionth? Fuck this place. I stumbled around the corner, back toward the elevator. Down at the end of the hall was a silhouette. Someone, backlit by those damn TVs, standing, waiting, expecting. Me? Or someone else? They stood on mangled legs and swayed there in the darkness. The whistling sped up to catch itself. I ducked into the elevator and mashed all of the buttons at once. The elevator ascended, or descended, honestly I couldn't tell. Maybe it was both at once. Maybe I was going up and down and sideways all at the same time. My sanity had certainly been doing that for some time now. The elevator ride lasted hours. I think it was hours. I crawled up on the elevator floor and slept, and only woke when the thing beeped and the doors slid open. I pulled myself up and walked out into what looked like the hotel's lobby. A large front desk presided over a sea of empty chairs. Chairs for waiting, for admittance, for good news, and for bad news. There was no dust here. The air was clean and crisp. I took off my mask, licked my dry lips with my drier tongue. The large glass windows and doors were black. It was night outside or something like it. Rain trickled down from some pleasant evening shower. There were other people here. I counted six. A mother and her young daughter. A lonely elderly man. A teenaged couple no older than sixteen. And a small infant in a carrier crying near the corner. None of them looked up to meet my eyes when I looked at them. They stared off into space or at the floor in front of them. I walked over to the front desk for the first time finding a phone sitting inconspicuous, right on the counter. I picked it up and got a dial tone. I could not believe it. I dialed my parents' number, and when it started ringing, I teared up. 
a few rings, and someone picked up. Hello? It was my mom's voice. Mom, I said. My dry throat cracked. Who is this? she asked. It's me. It's Jason. She paused for a long time. Mom? I asked, unsure if she was still there. Who is it? I heard my dad ask in the background. No one, she said back to him. Mom, I, I don't know where I am. I need help, I said. More silence on the other end. This isn't funny, she said. Don't call here again. She hung up. She hung up on me. I hung up and tried again. Tried to get a dial tone, but couldn't. I looked around the room. None of the others paid any attention to me. I walked around the front desk and sat in one of the nearby chairs. I'd try the phone again in an hour or so. Just wanted to take a moment to say we couldn't do this without you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tweeting your support. Thanks for sharing, subscribing, and rating. Enjoy the rest of the show. He was a friend of a friend's grandfather, the blind man. An amateur astronomer before the accident, I was told. An enthusiast that still filled his house with trinkets and tools for peering into space, despite the inability to use them for the last 15 years. He was a lot to handle, they said. He spoke in vague platitudes, obscure invectives, phrases that sounded like curses. When he did manage to carry on a conversation, he talked about the stars. Which was fine. I liked to talk about space. When I was in college, I was the stoner at the party that you avoided unless you were high too. Because all I wanted to talk about was what was out there. And now, some ten years on from graduating, I've often said that if I hadn't majored in English and become a technical writer, I would have been an astronomer. That's probably a slight exaggeration. I have trouble doing rudimentary equations on spreadsheets. I probably never would have grasped the math. But I liked looking through telescopes. I loved looking at pictures from Hubble. And I had a habit of seeking out the latest public domain images from NASA. The first time I went over to visit Conrad, that was his name, I almost choked on the musty, stale air. We spent more than our scheduled time talking about all the different maps and devices he had arranged in particular orders around his living room. We went through a certain ritual with each. I would point to it, momentarily forgetting he was blind. Then I would describe it to him. It's a dark, plastic telescope, maybe 14 inches long. It has a NASA logo on it. Oh, oh, ah, Conrad would say each time and then tell me a story, long or short, usually short, about the item. I got that one in 1993, he said, the third time I visited NASA. 
It's more of a souvenir. It doesn't work very well. There were far too many objects and far too little time our first meeting to get through them all, and when Conrad started yawning in an obvious attempt to send a message, I thought to ask about just one more curiosity. It was a long brass telescope, still seated on thin wooden legs, near the back of the room, pointed out the window. There was a small wooden stool next to it, and a small table next to that, and a glass still half full with water on the table. That story is much too long for tonight, he said, getting up. He walked me to the door, deftly moving about the apartment he knew so well. You're curious. I like that. I like you. When might I see you again, he asked, opening the door. Well, I'll have to check with the foundation when they have me scheduled to come over next, I said. Never mind that, he said. Tomorrow night. You come, and I'll tell you more about my trinkets. I had wanted to start volunteering for quite a long time when I finally started visiting him. I always made some excuse. I worked too much, or I couldn't fit it in after work, even if I didn't work so much, or my weekends were much too busy. What it really was, was that I was much too selfish. When this friend of a friend, one night at a mutual acquaintance's party, mentioned the volunteer that usually had visited his grandfather was suddenly unable to, and that the organization that coordinated such volunteers was too short-staffed to immediately fill the vacancy, I finally, thanks to a few drinks committed to doing something for someone else. The organization was one that ensured elderly people who couldn't really leave the house on a regular basis got visitors. I didn't ask why the grandson that talked me into it in the first place wasn't visiting him to begin with. They set a schedule of once every two weeks. That schedule went out the window when I arrived with takeout the following night to hear more about Conrad's wonderful collection. We ate Chinese food, and I asked about the brass telescope again, still set up at the window, still pointed at the stars. We'll get to that one. What else? I settled on a small patch pinned to a board on the far side of the room. What does it look like? Describe it to me. Circular. There's a Greek statue, the moon, what looks like a galaxy. Oh, oh, ah, yes. That's Apollo 17's mission patch, he said. What's so special about that one? I asked. The last Apollo mission, he said, and the last time we went to the moon. I think he expected some sort of response, but when I didn't speak, he continued. Why do you think we've never been back to the moon? I don't know, budget cuts? No, he said. I think they found something up there. Saw something they weren't meant to see. What? I asked. Soon, he said. We'll get to that soon. More than once, he wouldn't answer the door despite my forceful knocking. I think he was losing his hearing, too, in his old age. I'd try the knob and find it unlocked, let myself in, and find Conrad, bent over that old brass telescope, visionless eye pressed to the eyepiece. When I got his attention, he'd straighten up slowly, back creaking and cracking in his old age, and turned toward my general direction. To feel a little bit like my old self, he'd say with a smile. Like a ritual. Like some might not feel themselves before their morning cup of coffee, 
I don't feel like myself until my evening skyward gaze. Then I'd ask him to tell me more about the telescope, and he'd say no, and I'd protest, and we'd move on to something else. How about this? I asked, walking over to a small lump sitting on a side table. Describe it. It's a rock, I said, picking it up, surprised by how light it was. No, not a rock. I turned it over in my hand. It's a lump of... plaster? It's painted gray, but the paint's cracking and peeling off, and I can see the white underneath. Oh, oh, ah, yes, a model. Model, I asked, a replica. Of the first mineral sample, brought back by Apollo 11. I was so enamored with the pictures of it, in the papers and the magazines... I made my own. Of course, it doesn't hold up to the real thing. You saw the real sample? Yes, he said, and left it at that. Our visits went on for some weeks like this, building up the mystique surrounding that damned brass telescope. We had inventoried all of his esoteric possessions by the time we returned to it, but instead of asking about the telescope, I decided to ask him about his blindness. You want to know how I lost my vision? He asked. Yeah, I mean, we've known each other for a couple months now. We hang out a lot. He remained silent and trained his eyes toward the floor. If you don't want to, I mean, that's fine. You don't have to, I said, backpedaling. No, he said. It was just an accident. An automobile accident. I was stopped at a red light, and someone, a drunk, decided it wasn't necessary to stop for the light. I was hit by a car traveling 50 miles per hour. When I regained consciousness in the hospital sometime later, I had lost my ability to see. Jesus, I said. Indeed. Of course, that was a lie. And when I ran into Conrad's grandson later that week at another party, he told me as much. We think he fell in the shower, but honestly, no one really knows. Conrad, when I asked him about this inconsistency, answered my question with a question. It's the truth you're after? Yeah, I think telling the truth is important, I said. That's not good enough, he said. I don't understand why you would lie about how you went blind. Do you really care about how I lost my sight? He asked. You were using the question as a distraction. I, I wasn't. Yes, you were. You don't care about how I lost my sight, and it's not important anyway. With my loss of sight came profound vision, my friend. Vision. I see so much clearer. Now... What do you actually want to know about? I considered not answering for a moment. It still felt rude to acknowledge he was right and that I didn't care how he went blind. It's okay. I want to tell you, he insisted. I want to know about that damn telescope, I said, laughing. All right, then, he said. Come have a look. The brass was brilliant for how old Conrad claimed the telescope to be. The shine impressed me. Conrad somehow kept the thing spotless. My reflection stretched out down the barrel, not a spot of tarnish to be seen. He either kept the thing scrubbed and polished, 
or treated with some substance I had never heard of. I reached down and brushed my fingertips across the metal, expecting the cold shock of an abandoned coin. To my surprise, the metal was slightly worn. I wrapped my fingers around the base of the telescope just below the eyepiece. Some furnace burned deep down within the cylinder, warming the metal like magma flows might warm a hot spring. I let go, and the condensation left by my grasp evaporated almost immediately, accelerated, I guessed, by the internal heat. My loosened grip and retracted fingers started, in the telescope's body, a small vibration. I sensed it just as my fingertips left the warm brass tube, and then it arrived at my ears as a sweet ringing. It lingered just long enough that you could have tuned a piano key by it, some sort of astronomical tuning fork. I turned back toward Conrad, who was standing only a foot or so behind me. This is very strange, I said to him. Oh yes, very strange, that's true he spat out, laughing along the way. Look through it, and you'll see just how strange it really is. I examined his face. He was smiling, gentle and genuine as an old man does. I turned back to the telescope and hit it with my index finger, sending another sharp ringing through the room. Bending over at the waist, I felt a slight hesitation in the back of my head. A small rat, gnawing at the wiring of my mind. Conrad felt my hesitation and reached for my back, placing his hand just below my neck. His touch calmed my nerves. There was nothing for my right eye to focus on when I finally pressed it to the telescope's eyepiece. I realized quickly that the telescope pointed at nothing, the dark space between celestial bodies that makes up the majority of the night sky. I grasped the telescope and swung it around, searching for something interesting to look at. Stars, planets, the moon, all things I'd seen a million times before. But this time was different. The imprecise glass lenses in that old brass telescope tore and fractured the light. Stars danced and split into red and green and blue. The moon rippled at its edges, losing its shape. Mars stretched into an impossible spear, piercing the void. Then it dimmed. Those stars, those planets, the moon. They all flickered into a pale gray. I tried to straighten up, but Conrad grasped a fistful of my hair and forced my eye to remain against the eyepiece, displaying a staggering strength I never expected from a man his age. For minutes, I saw nothing except the fading light of dying stars. Then, on the edges of the telescope's field of view, shapes, at first just suggestions, barely perceptible movement against the cosmic darkness, then more defined, patches of iridescent color closing in on my gaze. I tried to close my eyes, but that didn't help. The shapes drifted around my retinas, and a macabre sense of curiosity wrenched my eyelids back open. I took the telescope back into my hand, searching the cosmos for the source of the colorful blobs, but found none. 
just floating patches of terrible possibility. I watched in awe and concern as the blobs began to congeal. They fell into themselves, stretched around themselves, devoured themselves, solidifying into floating edges and undulating surfaces. Arteries formed first, then veins, and the dark, cosmic void revealed itself to be flesh. The hidden energy of the universe pulsed through the arteries, propelled, I imagined, by some infinite heart. I heard its heartbeat in my ears, pounding, 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 matching my own. I reached up and plugged my ears, but it was inescapable, hammering through my body and reverberating through my mind. I watched the void flesh fold against itself, enveloping the stars first, then the planets, then the moon. Great flaps of skin retracted, exposing themselves as revolting flesh hoods, covering black holes of infinite terror. Then I saw them, great bony arms, thin and sickly, protruding from the folds and creases in the void flesh. On one, I counted nearly twenty elbows, and on the end of it, a hand with countless fingers that bent backwards and forwards and side to side. I followed one arm as it plunged down into the city below and snatched a man right off the street. The people around him didn't even take notice, and then the man was being pulled, screaming up toward the void flesh, up toward one of the flesh hoods as it retracted. The arm dropped the man into the black hole, and I suddenly understood. I summoned the strength to push Conrad off of me, and I stumbled backwards. My eyes darted around the living room that had become familiar to me, to all the knickknacks and telescopes, to all the astronomical maps, to Conrad. I couldn't see any of it. Panicking, I blinked, thinking it was a trick of looking too long in the telescope. I blinked again. Nothing. I stumbled around, arms outstretched, trying to find Conrad, but he was far better practiced at moving around this room without vision than I was. I bumped into tables and chairs, stubbed my toes, racked my knees, and Conrad danced around me. I tripped. On a chair, maybe, or a table. I hit the floor, and the wind was driven out of my chest. I coughed, tried to catch my breath, managed to choke out a string of words. What did you do to me? I asked. What was it that you showed me? I heard him shuffle around the room, moving closer to me. Then, he said, now, like me, you can see. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both The Blind Man's Telescope and Phoning Home, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Clear Night Skies and Long Dark Hallways. 
Death, Dying, and Other Things is a production of MWHS. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.